This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sri Dharma from the AAD program. And I'm Yuling from the AMR program. Welcome back to GSAP Conversations. This Friday, we are continuing our discussion in the making studio. GSAP faculty Mifo Matsiva is back in conversation with two new designers, Naim Bivji from Nairobi, Kenya, and DK Osiosare from Temagana. They both have a strong interest in indigenous craftsmanship and local communities. And today, they are sharing with us their alternative way of making in response to the rapid industrialization and modernization with big infrastructure in Africa. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is DK Oseo Asari. I'm a principal of Low Design Office, Lodo, based in Temagana and Austin, Texas, and an assistant professor at Penn State Architecture and Engineering Design. Something that really stuck out to me about um, your practice is your very explicit engagement with um, geopolitics, right? So you're talking about being transdisciplinary and speaking across multiple disciplines and not working in silos, but you're also very concerned with the conditions of production and the relations of production. Um, And I'm wondering what thinking through questions of making and design are when you think it through from Tema, for example, which in itself has a very complex and rich history around, you know, Kwame Nkrumah's modernization project and all of these experiments that various European um, architects enacted in that space. So to return there and engage with questions of modernity and technology and making um, at this particular historical moment um, is interesting. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how thinking design from Tema shifts the conversation for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way for me, Tema is is where it started literally in several ways. I mean, my, my house is in Tema. actually designed and built it before I studied architecture, formally in a school, and learned very much about the process of building by working with people that build, sort of on a day-to-day basis, in a way, an informal sense. So I think living in the city, you automatically are connected to how it operates as a platform. But I think also in terms of, you know, I did my, my first initial research over about three-plus years on Tema and comparing the original master plan and the motivations behind that um, and the kind of structural frameworks that sort of led to its creation and comparing that to the reality on the ground of the day-to-day and that led to a number of different ideas like kiosk culture and and other things I've looked at but it's extremely important especially when you talk about architecture in the city in Africa because it's so implicitly linked to this discourse of development Mm -hmm. um, which obviously relates to colonialism the sort of very real and raw and violent ways in which Africa afforded modernity through sort of essentially the materials that were able to use be used to create it. So I think also the fact that these new cities that are being built in Africa are literally destroying the environment, it becomes extremely important to look at the relationships between the destructive nature of this kind of production and these economic and political motivations behind it and the sort of the way in which it tries to to formalize a terrain and bring it into a global structure. 
Right, because I mean, even in the 1950s, uh, Drew and Fry were already um, producing all kinds of plans around how to deal with the fact that you have gar fishermen so close to the coast and what this means in terms of a modernization project. And I'm wondering what, what place does kiosk culture then occupy in this um, narrative arc, right? In your text about futurity or futures, you talk about litany um, and how um, many sort of informal economic activities around recycling and e-waste are embedded in a kind of pathological discourse mm -hmm. and and that this is somehow read as working um, against modernity but your entry point seems to be very different you're making a different argument about the kiosk as a way to think about futures mm -hmm. so could you talk a little bit more about that on one level, I see it as an opportunity or a way out, not necessarily from modernity, but maybe from particular conventions of, of, of the world as it exists today, um, and potentially a kind of portal or pathway to alternate, alternative futures. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of tie it back to the Tema discourse, I mean, the, the original inspiration for Tema was to be able to bring the raw materials out of Ghana more quickly because there were no natural deep water harbors. And so they, the British surveyed the whole coastline and decided that this was the best location to build a city. And that happened again decades before independence. And the whole purpose was to build a deep water port so that they could actually get things out of, out of the country more easily. And then that was combined with you know, hydroelectricity and, mm -hmm. and factories. But it was, it was entirely about a kind of... Extraction. Extraction and, and sort of building on the ground a particular kind of approach to economic development. Um, so what's interesting is that kiosks on some level represent the other end of the spectrum. And if you think about them as, as building blocks, literally, or kind of minimum units of architecture, they're the spaces that people can build when they have no money and when they have no power. And when they don't own land, because these are mobile structures that can be deployed and redeployed and, and sort of assembled out of you know, any variety of materials or recovered materials, found materials. So in a way, if you think about how you can build architecture um, for minimum costs without being tied to land as a way of sort of exiting this sort of system that layers more and more obligations on top of itself, then it can become interesting. So that's, that's, then, that's in a way been this project over 10 years of trying to figure out what it means and how can you approach building things at, at very low cost. And then also how is it woven into the human systems, like the people that actually live in these spaces, work in these spaces, build them, and the ways in which they know how to build. Um, and you have to think about architecture in dialogue with, with those spaces and those processes. So the way that you're conceptualizing what you describe as micro-architecture is both a technological project, uh, an economic project, and a political project, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what I increasingly I've, I've sort of taken to explaining people when they find it hard to understand of why I have this obsession with, with kiosks and, and micro buildings. I mean, um, since I was at the GSD, I often joke that one of my great accomplishments was to graduate with studying shacks. <laughs> but what I like to say is that I, I think of them as, as, as micro infrastructure. And if you think about in aggregate, all of the kiosks and shacks and sheds and small structures and containers all across Africa, if you think about them as a kind of in aggregate, a, a sort of single architectural object, 
it's of enormous scale and it affects the everyday life of millions and millions of people. So if you think about how you can design that, not as a single building object which you celebrate and, and say this is a symbol of how amazing this architectural object is, but if you think about it much more as, as a, kind a, system. Of a system and a kind of network of, of approaches that can be sort of embedded in, in these sort of human processes, it becomes quite a large project. So what is your process? I mean, I'm thinking about the makerspace in Ghana. What, what, have, what has been your process around that? Because you're very explicit about um, the fact that it's not about producing this discrete, highly aestheticized artifact, but is really embedded in a set of systems and processes. Mm -hmm. But could you just unpack that a little bit in mm -hmm. terms of like what are the different stages and mm -hmm. what are the... Uh, processes you've engaged in and what in your view has been the most productive mm -hmm. mode of engagement with this because many people have studied mm -hmm. informality they've studied um, urban systems so what is it about your approach that opens up um, ways of thinking about alternatives I mean for us it's always been about a process it's been a process and, and not a product I think I saw that in in one of the texts for for this event so I feel in some ways at home here I think even in terms of our architectural work we always see a building as a full-scale prototype we don't distinguish between the sort of you know you're developing something and then you have the the final sort of version Everything is a kind of stepping stone to the next thing. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of the AMP project specifically, Agbabloshi Makerspace Platform, that was actually in some ways a process that was very intentionally developed. So uh, Yasmin Abbas, who's a French architect and sort of co-founder and initiator of that project, we had initially started uh, with a theory or a sort of theorem um, there's a lot of interest nowadays in design thinking mm -hmm. and increasingly this kind of ideal model is applied to the city and it can be very problematic, especially in spaces where inclusivity is, is not automatic. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in how can you have a more robust approach for trying to, we call it inducing inclusive urban innovation. And so we developed this theory called Stellation about how you approach that. Some friends and colleagues had said, you know, this, this will be more comprehensible to people if they can see it in, in a real-world use case. And so that was one of multiple, but one of the factors that played into us initiating that project. And the Stellation model has sort of five aspects to it. So it's about sort of defining what it is that you want to do, but not just a sort of framing a problem, but actually defining a kind of roadmap, mm -hmm. recognizing that that roadmap or pathway to change might, might evolve. Um, and then it has to do with going out into the community and uh, essentially engaging and discovering things that you don't already know by being in the space with the people who live there. And out of that process, you then sort of develop this map to try to make sense of all of this information, to create a kind of ordered set uh, of data, which then feeds into a co-design process, which is on one level thinking about you know, doing, going through a design process in a participatory way with the people who would, well, lots of different stakeholders, but especially the people on the ground, but also thinking in terms of a dynamic, dynamic system. So not a single design, but something which is um, a bit more conceptually in code, um, and so can be parametric and dynamic. And then finally prototyping that. So it's these five kind of orbitals, mm -hmm. which happen all at the same time. And so the process has been essentially to have an idea that you think can be of value and then to just start doing it 
with other people. How's it working out? It's been very interesting because, again, it's not just an architectural project. There's a sort of digital platform dimension to it. There's also kind of tooling and technology dimension to it as well in terms of kitting out uh, a makerspace. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the architectural component, we just set up a factory in next Agoloshi, sort of in this embedded grassroots maker community, which we're hoping very soon we can actually sort of start on-demand production of the spacecraft. Who are the makers? You know, it's funny because, like, of course, they don't really call themselves makers in this context. They're just like people and they do what they do. <laughs> Um, makers goes back to this idea of discourse. That's what people like to talk about them globally. But um, it makes them globally legible. Absolutely. What's at stake for you in well, closing? <laughs> yeah, the, for the purpose of it is that we're trying to help to transition these kinds of maker ecosystems into a world where they can be fully engaged with digital design and fabrication. So to bring them sort of with, if you want to say, the rest of the world into this future to make sure that they don't end up being disadvantaged by a kind of technological power imbalance, but to be able to try and build a way that this kind of uh, makerspace technology can be locally built at an affordable cost by the people who are already working in these spaces in a kind of collaborative and open, open source way that can be inclusive and accessible for everyone. And one of the things that you speak about in the many rich texts that you've written is, is making a distinction between um, design as problem solving and design as um, asking a set of questions and, and creating conditions of possibility, which I think is quite provocative, like this idea of like design as anticipatory as opposed to being something that resolves uh, a paradox or a complexity and so I don't know if you have any closing thoughts around this idea of possibility because it seems that this is what this is what you're doing it's anticipatory and it's partly I think about not being left behind by the rest of the world but also bringing another kind of world into being right I mean exactly I mean it's you know it's it's one of those things where you can always ask yourself if, if an idea is too radical or if it's too extreme to even sort of consider engaging it. But I mean, definitely in terms of, of this, this specific type of work that we've been working on, for us it's about what do you do with the millions and millions of young people in Africa that need to build their own future? And is that future wearing a suit and tie and going to work in an air-conditioned office building to work hopefully and aspirationally for some kind of multinational corporation. Is that really the vision that we have for Africa? And I've taught for several years in, in Ghana. I've worked with many young people, and for many young people it is. For many people, this is the future that is the best possible future they can imagine. And so for us, I guess, is to say, well, what other futures might there be? To sort of figure that out through a process of engaging and working with many different people, but definitely we're, we're, we're hoping that in some small way we can contribute to a future which is much more open and can, can help us think about post-capitalist societies in Africa, uh, which is really, once again, the last frontier. Thank you, DK. My name is Naeem Bivaji. I'm a co-founder of Studio Propolis with my wife, Beth. We have a workshop together in Nairobi, and we design things and make things from the workshop. I think that there's something really interesting about this idea of happy accidents and um, how 
um, for you, the process of making is not different from the process of design necessarily, but mm -hmm. there's a kind of continuum. When we're most happy is when we are using the workshop to uh, design and making models and uh, when you haven't gone in with a, a really kind of definite idea of what you're doing. Because often, actually, what we do is we have to actually draw things very well before we make them, because otherwise you make mistakes and, you know, it costs money. And But that early stage, that design stage is zero, as it were, which often is hard to quantify, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's much more, I think, efficient for us instead of just sitting sketching the whole time. We, we may gain more ground much faster in the workshop kind of making things. I was reading, there are many things about um, Studio Propolis that I think are fascinating. Um, but, I, you know, the, the fact that so much of your practice um, revolves around the, your workshop is interesting. And I know that in previous conversations, you talk about how um, you and your founding partner and mm -hmm. life partner, Beth Fan, yeah. uh, were driving around the English countryside finding um, equipment that nobody sure. else was using. Um, and this seems to be part of the philosophy of Studio Propolis, mm -hmm. of like finding a value proposition in what are considered defunct or derelict infrastructures or technologies and, re and reworking well, them. Well, we've done that with machines, but I think it's how we approach everything. I mean, in our African context, there is no waste, you know. We're very frugal with, with cutting lists we make, how we use everything gets recycled. So these machines were old m machines which couldn't pass uh, British uh, safety standards with their aut automated brake systems. But we had to rebuild a lot of them as well, and but there's still a great kind of life in them, and it's our kind of it's how we live our lives, I suppose, and how we kind of in every aspect how we eat, all, all aspects of our lives. This kind of permeates through. And this idea of waste um, is is interesting because you also talk about um, your culture of making and also a culture of unmaking mm -hmm. in the disassembly or repurposing mm -hmm. um, components from the house that you and sure. Bethan were working on. And, and can you just talk a little bit more about what unmaking means well, for you? Well, you know, we, it's a house we've been building for many years and, you know, the developer model would have been to erase what we had and rebuild something new uh, or multiple units on the same plot. But we live in an age where... I can't see a good justification for a matter of taste destroying something that's actually perfectly livable. But yet we have this house which needed to be adapted for, for, for potential future occupants other than ourselves. And I think that was the problem with the house. So it was how to kind of strip it back and uh, pull out pieces which, you know, had been over the years uh, kind of, I suppose, bad interventions or misplaced interventions, but pull it out and reappropriate all this material to make a much more flexible living arrangement. We've also had conversations about um, influences for the work that you do. We've mm. had conversations about um, the Bauhaus mm -hmm. and um, the role of industrialization in building cultures in mm -hmm. Northern Europe and maybe... West Europe and Northern America, and what the productive differences are between that historical moment and the historical moment that we're in right now. 
And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, this idea of tolerance and the interface between um, technology and um, handcraft or... Sure. I mean, it's something we see all over the developing world. Certainly in India, it's so prevalent, you know. Like, well, what I've always loved is some of the furniture that was made, like when Kabuzier was building Chandigarh, for example. It had that quality of, of the handmade and then bits were woven and... Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the seats and things, and yet there was an industrialized production. They were made in this kind of way to be produced. And in a similar way, like Jean Prouvé's work has been a big influence on, hmm. on the way uh, we think as well, because he was, we really loved the, the kind of more democratic aspect of how he worked as a craftsman within his own workshop, mm -hmm. firstly. And secondly, how he was always kind of uh, so cutting edge at the time, like I think he had a welding machine before Citron or something like that, I can't remember. But you know, he always used the, the latest kind of technology that was available to him. And okay, we don't at the moment, but you know, this is things we want to explore. But yeah, and, and the way his work also, it wasn't stylistically kind of stuck. He constantly evolved in, in the pieces he designed and made over the years as uh, materials that he had available changed. I mean, Prevé is a very interesting example. After we spoke about it earlier, I went to, to read up on him. And I was quite fascinated by the way that he could use very sort of conventional manufacturing techniques and produce um, new objects that had a kind of widespread use. So the standard chair or... Oh, sure, like so thinking curtain from multiple walling, scales. Curtain, gla <laughs> uh, curtain glazing as we know it, you know, was kind of developed by him. And... But he came from a background of like being a metalsmith, wrought iron. The way he kind of pushed that idea and changed with what he was doing comes from, I think, being in a workshop and in the same way that Breuer uh, did as well. I find it amazing if you ever see that the kind of his Africa chair, this kind of very uh, traditional wooden throne and how kind of in a few years later he managed to design the Wasili chair, I think is an amazing evolution of so many big conceptual leaps and, and I think working in a workshop allows that. So tell me more about tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, tolerance is something we always have to kind of negotiate uh, on all projects. It's how things fit, different things fit w within other things. Uh, if it's and different, and different um, cultures of technology, different cultures yeah, of making having yeah. to occupy the same space. Sure, and I think the big challenge is getting other people's work to fit into our work and, uh, or each other's work. So for me, I think we live in an age where the idea of tolerance is very important politically and globally we've become so intolerant and I think tolerance for me is, is the greatest challenge because we, we really want to make something well and it's about absorbing other people's imperfection, other people's ways of working into our own design thinking is what I think tolerance is for us and uh, in a way that allows us to still use everyone's work to make a contemporary product but that's still very African and so contemporary. So what's, what's the African value proposition for, for the way that you think about design? What does having a workshop in Nairobi offer? It's not necessarily something aesthetic because our influences are a global kind of aesthetic influence but I think it's more a way of working with readily available minimal palette of materials locally. 
and trying to really, I think, embrace this idea of other people's work fitting in our work. And, uh, you know, I think we live in an amazing time still in Nairobi where you can get things machined and uh, things can be handmade and, you know, like, and you see it in the vehicle industry as well. Last year, we hired a car in Britain and we had a little dent on the door and it's, the car's written off by insurance. And, you know, in Kenya, you would have gone, someone would have just panel beated it, resprayed it, good as new. And, you know, there's a certain beautiful kind of economy in that. That economy still exists mm -hmm. to repair, to make, to mend, to reappropriate, to salvage. And it's tapping into that. So it's these human systems of production and uh, whether it's laying a terrazzo floor, which is so labor intensive and, you know, but it can still be done and people do it and, you know. What kind of design futures can we look forward to? In, in Africa? Yeah. In your ideal you know, um, scenario. I think we need to stop thinking about, uh, you know, kind of the state providing big infrastructure as good city building, you know, uh, and it needs to come from a different kind of scale of people kind of making stuff. Uh, and I think having an indigenous skill base where people can make and build buildings that people use and understand local traditions and uh, techniques and materials and uh, do them really well goes a long way to making affordable, sensible, local housing, building stock that, you know, in a lot of the rest of the world gets built the amount of effort that we have to expend to get it done. Um, and I think, you know, that would be really great if we can build, I think, so I think we really need to build local craft craftsmanship and craftsmen they can work with local materials otherwise it just all gets imported from you know mm -hmm. from China from and you always get all the seconds arriving and you know and that gets badly put together there's a great de-skilling of, of of society in the way we build and I think it has to start with the craftsmen and your practice is very concerned with that too yeah so uh, I wish we were going to be around in Kenya a bit more. It's time to take on some apprentices, you know. Um, they're one or two cool projects that other people have started. Uh, training women, for mm -hmm. example, as builders. Uh, I think uh, it's called Build Her. It's a, it's a program that I think is quite exciting. And there are a few people kind of concerned with this idea. You know, without people demanding good materials, the materials never get kind of across the board. So, like, you know... The foresters need to be growing wood properly, they need, the trees need to be coppiced properly, there need to be planks in the sawmill properly, and this is all kind of craftsmanship that needs to be kind of... Mm -hmm. And only then do you have good wood that you can actually make good stuff out of, or, you know, and the same applies in the quarries, all the building materials. So yeah. are you thinking the systems all together? Well, it all needs to be invested in, um, in a big way, and only then can... You know, I really think we can build local buildings beautifully. I think they're doing it in Rwanda, I feel, somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a bit more in Uganda as well, from what I see architects doing. But yeah, there seems to be a greater sensitivity about using local materials. And as architects, we need to specify those materials and demand a, a quality. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.